you have your Bibles, look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verse 11 down to verse 13. So when you find your place, if you would stand in honor of God's holy word. Trust everybody had a great July 4th week. Uh, if you haven't been able to sleep good the last few nights, that will continue. We are in the U.S. of A., aren't we? And we are thankful to live in America. Amen. Tonight we're going uh, to read uh, verse 11 down to 13. If you would read verse 11 with me. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Verse 12 goes on to say, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. There were some in that church that were accusing Paul and fighting against Paul, and he said they had glory in their external, but not in the internal. Verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, and the idea there of being insane, whether people think we're insane, it is to God, we're, we're going to be faithful to God no matter what the world thinks of us, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray that you would reveal this truth to us, grant us and understanding heart, open our eyes to behold wondrous truths out of thy law. You said in your word it would not return void, but it would accomplish all you've sent it to do. And so may I preach with power, with the Holy Spirit, with fervency, with grace, and in truth. Lord, bless this service, the kids, the teen service, and all that's going on tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this evening. Webster defines motivation as the act or process of giving someone a reason for doing something. Tonight I want to look at the motivations of the Christian life. Have you ever struggled with motivation in life? Ever struggled with motivation? Perhaps you have a big project looming over you. They say when you have a to-do list, you always want to knock out the biggest project first to get it out of the way. But maybe you have a big project looming over you and you know it needs to get done. Perhaps a project at home, a renovation, maybe a yard project your wife has asked you to do, or some other project that you're working on at your job. One of the keys to being able to accomplish a project efficiently and completely is to have the right motivation. You have to be motivated to start the project first, right? You have to have some motivation. It's interesting to see the increase in attendance at gyms across America come January. We get motivated after we filled our bodies with all the unhealthy foods. And, uh, and, and we, we get motivated and then the, then the attendance drops off by the end of January. Something happened to the motivation. But one area that I would say every Christian will struggle in at some point is motivation in their Christian life. And one reason for this is the Christian life is an ongoing pursuit. It's an ongoing job that's never finished. There are always souls that need to be saved. There's always more truth that you need to learn and apply. There's always more that we need to surrender if the goal is to be conformed into the image of Christ, has anyone here arrived? So it's just a constant, unending pursuit. 
I'm sure most have felt a fire and joy for God in the beginning of your salvation. You were energized on the inside. It was kind of maybe the honeymoon stage, if you would, of your Christian life. But as the years have gone on, you may not always feel the same level of motivation, feelings-wise, that you once had. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I believe that God initiates feelings and strong feelings at that in order to compel us forward for lack of the knowledge we don't have yet. Because we're not driven by truth as much as we are by feelings early on because we don't know all the truth. And so to read the word, to study, to pray, to evangelize, to serve, to attend church, God gives you some energy as a grace to make you faithful. But then he lets, I believe, by grace, those feelings to fade. Because he wants us to serve him not based on feelings. He wants us to serve him based out of love. And love is not a feeling. It will affect feelings. It can affect feelings. But it is not a feeling. It's much more than that. Let me ask you a question. What is more loving? Coming to church when you really feel like it? Or coming to church because you know you should even when you don't feel like it? One makes no sacrifice, the other is sacrificing something. What is more loving, doing something for someone when you really want to, or doing something even if you don't want to, but you're going to do it because you know they need it? You see, truth is the more mature application, and it's the, it's the greater evidence of love. We don't read the Bible because we feel like it always. We read the Bible because we love Christ, and we want His Word. We desire it. I don't need my flesh to motivate my spirit. Right? I don't, I don't need to feel something, to, to get excited. I, I don't need that. If you base your spiritual life on feelings, you, you will find yourself on a roller coaster. I grew up in churches that did that. It was very emotional. And you always had to kind of peek out at those emotions, get everybody fired up and lathered up in some kind of an emotional appeal. Well, that doesn't really work itself out on Monday morning, right? You know, that's, that's why we don't do a big jam concert here on church on Sundays. That's why we don't turn, you know, we, 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 we could turn all the lights off, we could get some smoke machines, we could, we could hire some, some real fancy musicians and just do a big concert type show, we could do all of that, but... But that's not, what, that, that, that's, not, that's not spirituality. That's not, um, that's not found in Scripture, number one, and it's not necessary, and it's not something that we would ever want to do. So, so I just want you to understand, sometimes people, I think, feel convicted by that. They're like, you know, what happened to that? You know, early on in my Christian life, I was so energized, all these feelings and emotions and and probably when you got married to your spouse, you probably felt the same way. You probably had a lot of feelings early in the dating, early on, but then as years go on, it's a more mature love now, right? I love my wife more now than I did by far than when we dated and got married. I mean, it's not even close. I, I, our marriage is so much better now than it was in year one or it's in any other years. It just seems to get better. I just praise God for that. And truth is, is what compels you. You're driven by what 
now as a Christian what you've learned from God's Word. The, you know, the Christian is a lifelong journey. So what will motivate you to continue a race that never ends this side of heaven? And, and, and here in verse 11 through 21, the last section of this chapter, I believe that Paul gives us four primary motivations for the Christian life. And we're just going to look at one of them tonight. I thought I would get through two, but I found out I may not even... I'm going to try to definitely get through one tonight. So, you know, Paul, Paul is a great example for us because, because he didn't just finish, start the race, but he finished it. I, I don't want to find motivation from someone who didn't cross the line. Paul got to the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And I want to come to him and say, what did you do to cross the line? What kept you motivated? Is, 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 this mess, is this resonating with anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about where you're like, why don't I have the same? Okay, see, so, so, so we, we all experience this. I just want you to know that this is, this is a process of maturity. You go from... You know, the three parts to what's known as personage is feelings, intellect, and the will. Feelings are the toddler part of a person. You know, when you ask a two-year-old why they did what they did, they're not going to say, I sat down and reasoned my options. There's four Tonka trucks in here, but that one's mine. And, you know, I just thought I would, I, I, I sized him up. I could take him, so I punched him in the face and <laughs> took his crackers as well, you know. I mean, they, they, they don't reason that out. They just get emotional. And, 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 and have you ever said this? You know, I, I, I said some things I shouldn't have because you were emotional. You know, emotions can be great servants but horrible masters. They're made for the trailer, not the driver's seat. So, so we don't, if, if we don't want them on the driver's seat in our, in our normal life, why would we want them in the driver's seat in our Christian life? Now, I, I do say this. Christianity should affect our emotions right? I mean, we should get excited, like we should get, it should stir us up, because truth, but, but it's, it's truth that does that, and, and, and the will is the deeper part of us, and so we surrender that to God, and, and just know this, your love for God will be more manifest when you serve Him, worship Him. Have, have, let me ask you this, has there ever been a time when you didn't feel like sharing the gospel, but you know you should, and you did, and then what did you get later? You felt great for doing it. What's interesting is God reversed everything in the spiritual life than the physical. You, when, you, when you get, God precedes your eating with a feeling of hunger. God precedes your drinking uh, with thirst. He gives you the desire before you partake. In the Christian life, the desire comes after you partake. He increases it after. He wants you to come to Him based on truth and love, not just some earthly uh, or, or, or sometimes a fleshly energized feeling or emotion. That's why it's so detrimental what these churches are doing to people. They're literally creating an atmosphere for the flesh, for the toddler part of us. And, and, and so instead of being led by truth that will transform us, they, they fill them up and energize them with emotions. Now, I'm not saying singing in itself is just a fleshly emotional thing, but when you create a sound-dominating atmosphere with a light show that's concert setting, right? What do you think you're appealing to? So 
I, I know enough about people and humanity and marketing techniques and all of that from the business world that I was in that, that Christ says, we, Paul said, uh, when I came to you, I came to you in fear and trembling and I purpose to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what we need. We, we need truth. We need Christ. We need the Word of God. We need to know what it means we need to break down verses. We need to know what that truth is because it's the truth that will transform the person's life. And so, and it's what's lacking in so much of Christianity. And so today I want to look at, it's funny because in my notes I said two reasons, but I'm only, I know now I'm only going to get through one of them, so we'll have to edit that out. Um, but just one tonight, and, and I want to talk about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord and, and um so much could be said about this, um, but one of the motivations for us living the Christian life is our fear of God. He says here in verse number 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Two main words for knowing in the Greek, there's ido, E-I-D-O, and genosko, root of for where we get the word gnostic or to know. So Edo is intuitive knowledge. It's, it's more absolute, like, like I know this without a doubt. Gnosko is, is knowledge that's gained by experience. It's actually knowledge that increases. It's progressive. So what Paul says here is not Gnosko, therefore. It's Edo, therefore. What he's saying is, I know this intuitively. I know this without a doubt. This is full knowledge. And what did he fully know? He says, knowing therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it? Exactly. You guys are teaching me. So Paul had been speaking, leading up to this, about the incredible joy of looking into eternity with the anticipation to have a new body and being in the presence of the Lord. He, he, he was excited about that. 2 Corinthians 5.80 said, we are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body is to be Present with the Lord, okay? Verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, or we want to be well-pleasing to God. Verse 10, for we must, let's read verse 10 together. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The idea of bad there being good or worthless, worthy or worthless works. So one day, we will give an account of our life to God to be examined for all that we've done, whether it was good or useful, acceptable or bad. That leads to verse 11. Knowing that that day, I factually know without a doubt, we will stand before God and give an account of our life, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Absolute certainty of the judgment seat of Christ. Absolute certainty of a holy God examining our lives. Knowing for sure that's going to happen, it should stimulate a holy fear of God, which in turn will serve as a motivation for our Christian life. Let me ask you, how does the prospect of standing before the Lord, fully known before Him, examined and judged, affect your service to Him? How should it affect your faithfulness? Should the believer be able to face the judgment seat of Christ without a sense of fear? 
to have all your life in judgment before a holy God? Turn to Proverbs 1 with me. Uh, you can hold your place there in 2 Corinthians, but flipping back to Proverbs chapter number 1. Proverbs 1 is... Proverbs itself is just such a, um, such a joy. If you have not found yourself in the rhythm in life to read Proverbs, one thing you can do is just read one proverb a night. Read in the mornings, I always encourage, but then at night on July 5th, read Proverbs 5. Tomorrow, read Proverbs 6, and uh, you just read the, the 31 Proverbs and just correlate that with the day. I want to talk here, secondly, about the priority of fearing God. Proverbs 1.7, let's read that verse together. He writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, the word beginning there is a Hebrew word, reshith. And it can have one of two meanings. It means the beginning or the first step in a course of action. Or secondly, the chief thing as the principal aspect or component of something. Like, like Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Here in verse 7, not only is wisdom the beginning point, but he's saying it is the chief principle for one to live by. He's telling us the fear of the Lord is where you start, but you don't move away from the fear of the Lord as you grow. It is like a starting line you walk... It is not, I should say, like a starting line that you walk away from, but rather a teacher that you go through life learning from and continuing down the road with wisdom as both a companion and an instructor in your life. You know, plants need sun and rain to start life, so they need sun and rain to sustain life. So we both start with fearing God and we are sustained with fearing God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge here is not simply book knowledge. It refers to experiential and relational knowledge. So so we are to fear the Lord, and and, and that's that's how he launches this off. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Thirdly, what is the fear of the Lord? The word fear in Hebrew is yaira. It speaks of standing in awe of, to cause astonishment in awe, to cause reverence or godly fear to honor. In Scripture, it's defined as fear, exceedingly fearful, dreadful fearfulness. It speaks of something or someone that's awesome and even terrifying to whom you would pay reverence. And when you place the Lord as your object, it captures two key ideas. First of all, it is the idea of shrinking back in fear, and it's also drawing close in awe and adoration. Warren Wiersbe says, the fear of the Lord means reverence for God and respect for His Word, a willingness to listen, and a promptness to obey Him. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, the fear of God is astonished reverence. Isn't that good? He said, I believe that the reverential fear of God mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion is the most enjoyable state and the most satisfying emotion the human soul can know, end quote. Right fear of God is an awe and admiration which manifests itself in unflinching obedience. The word fear is used 42 times in the Old Testament, and it's used more times in the book of Proverbs than any book in the Old Testament. 
It travels like an artery, pumping life into the book of wisdom. You want to be wise? Fear God. You, 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 wanna, you, you know the difference between wisdom and knowledge is? Knowledge is having information. Wisdom is living it out. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to know how to apply it. Just some things that Proverbs says about the fear of the Lord. It's used 14 times in the book of Proverbs. It tells us it's the beginning of knowledge in chapter 1. It tells us wisdom or the fear of the Lord is rejected by those who hate knowledge. It is where you find the knowledge of God. It causes you to hate sin. It causes you to depart from evil. It is the beginning of wisdom. It prolongs your life. It produces a strong confidence and refuge in the Lord. It is called a fountain of life. It is said to be more valuable than any earthly treasure. It causes you to be instructed with wisdom. It will lead you to a life of satisfaction. It will produce riches, honor, and life. And it will cause you to avoid envying sinners. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Paul uses the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia. It's used six times in 2 Corinthians. And in this fear, God has designed with the capacity to... Uh, the, 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 the phobia, I should say, is... is um, it's not a it's not a fear that like God is going to hurt you that that you know like a like a trembling in fear of like someone abusing you. It's 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 a, it's a, it's an amazement of God. It's a it's a silent awe. You're struck in your soul at the greatness of God. Anybody here been to the Grand Canyons? You know there there's an there's There's a feeling of like, man, don't get too close to the edge, but man, I just want to look at how awesome. But boy, I just, boy, that's so, so fearful how huge that is. I mean, but boy, just step forward just and and you you stand there in this unsettledness, right? And there's a fear of the awesomeness of the setting. And before God, friends, there is this, this, trembling of the greatness of a holy God, but there's a, there's a desire to draw near. I mean, I mean, the fear of the Lord caused Isaiah to fall down and, and say, I'm a man of unclean lips, and he, and he trembled before God, but then he, he rose up and said, Lord, here am I, send me. It's, it's both shrinking back and coming near. William Barclay writes, Phobos is not the fear of trembling of the slave cringing before the master, nor fear and trembling at the prospect of punishment. It comes from two things. It comes first from a sense of our own creatureliness and our own powerlessness to deal with life triumphantly. That is to say, it is not the fear of trembling which drives us to hide from God, but the fear of trembling which drives us to seek Him. In the certainty that without His help we cannot effectively face life, it comes second from a horror of grieving God. When we really love a person such as God, we are not afraid of what He may do to us. We are afraid of what we may do to Him. We don't want to violate Him with our sin. Now, in a spirit of humility and dependency upon God is also a way that Paul reflected this phobos. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear. I, I, I had a humble spirit about me. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says that this kind of fear 
promotes a holy life. It says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. What's the last part of that verse say? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You, you fear him and it drives you to live a holy life. Fear refers to, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, it's used in how the Corinthians would receive his letter. He said, I feared how you might receive this. Not, not that I would, was, he was fearing that they would be offended, but that, that, that they would take it in a way that would hurt them. You ever have to deal with somebody and you, you're not afraid to tell them the truth, you're just afraid how they might receive it? Fear was foundational for the church to follow Paul's guidance in 2 Corinthians 7, 15. Uh, in Acts 9.31, it says, Then the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that interesting? The fear of God and the comfort of God is, is, are joined together. You know, even fearing God is the heart of husband and wife submitting to one another. Ephesians 5.21 tells uh, couples, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Why should a husband submit to loving his wife right and a wife submit to reverencing and respecting and honoring his headship in the home? Because they fear God. It's vertical that fleshes itself out in horizontal relations. Now, now we see that what the fear of God is. Why, why is the fear of God called the starting point back in Proverbs 1.7? Because it says in in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the knowledge, of, of knowledge. And, and later in Proverbs, it said it's the beginning of wisdom. You need to understand that God has designed mankind with the capacity to experience powerful emotions, feelings, and one of those is fear. You know, fear is very powerful. People can be said to be paralyzed by fear. Different people speak about phobias they deal with. Anybody here scared of spiders? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're scared of snakes, okay? A lot of us, yeah. I'll never forget, I lived out way out in the country when I helped my brother start a church years ago. We was in Chillicothe, but I lived out in Frankfurt. And I mean, we were, we were back at back gravel road. I mean, spiders got like this big. Everything was like bigger, you know? I'm like, where do they grow these things, you know? I'm like beating this thing, you know, attacking us, you know? Um, I'll never forget one night she woke me up. She said, there's somebody breaking in the house. And I go running through the house. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'll probably get shot. I just run through the house. And, and there was a raccoon. I mean, this raccoon was as big as me. <laughs> Actually, she woke me up. She said, there's something running through the house. But it wasn't in the house. It was at, <laughs> it was at the front door. I opened the door. I, I am not lying. This raccoon is, is a monster. It's literally, I open the door, and it's just me and a window there, and it looks at me, has, has a bag of chips, and it just goes right back to it. I'm like a foot away. I'm like, are you kidding me? And this thing's like, what are you looking at? Go back to bed. <laughs> but I'll never forget, she, uh, you know, my wife doesn't like snakes, and, and, and uh, the house we had there, it used to be an old cabin. It was built into a house. It was just, it was, it was, it was kind of an older, rougher house. But um, there was a snake that got in the house, and it had gotten into a wall. Yeah, she, well, it was halfway into the wall. So it, she, uh, she comes screaming. I didn't bloody murder her, and I come and run in the kitchen. She's like, there's a snake in the closet. And that snake was, was about this long. I mean, it's 
you know, it was like this long. It's like three feet long, and, uh, and it was a fat one, and it was halfway into the wall. And we had just watched a movie or show, it was a show about like an invasion of snakes, and they got in walls. <laughs> I, I love to terrorize my wife with shows like that. So she's like, no, don't watch it. I'm like, this is great. Just watch this next part. She's like, ah, you know, and then she's here and stuff in the walls. And, uh, and all I could think of is like, this is coming back around on me. This, this, you know, like two weeks later. And I thought, if I don't grab the snake, I will not be able to live in this house because, you know, there would be a snake in the wall. And I, wouldn't, I would just continue on, you know, just as a grunt guy. But like, you know, I know she wouldn't be comfortable. So, so I did the only th- I had watched Steve Irwin enough to know how to, how to handle this situation. I was like, back up, babe. We're going to get real here. <laughs> I just, just reached out and grabbed it, man, and just pulled that thing and wrangled it out and uh, took it outside and said, what did you do? Yeah, don't worry about it. We, we, we took care of it. I don't need any letters in the mail about a snake, loving person, and, uh, <laughs> you know, took care of business. But, you know, we have these phobias, and, and I can tell you, people can be paralyzed by fear. I was talking to somebody the other day, I won't mention their name, Chris, but they, they, were, uh, they were up on one of these things where it's like, you know, hundreds of feet up, and, 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 and it was a glass, it was like a glass thing you walk out on, and, and, and you're, you know, you're, I don't know how many hundreds of feet up, and, and he said, I, you know, I, he, this, guy, this guy's a brave, tough guy, and, and he said he walked up, he just, he would stop, he's like, I can't do it, he just, he's like, I was so frozen. And, and, and I've seen people get frozen by heights where they just get stuck and they can't move and, and just terrified. Now, now, fear, what I'm trying to say, has the ability to really control you. Fear produces control. Therefore, whoever or whatever we fear most will begin to control us most. They will determine the decisions we make, what we do, how we talk, how we live. And as preachers, it will determine how we preach and minister. The person or thing we fear most will be the greatest authority in our lives. Who we fear most is whose approval we seek most. Whoever you fear most is who you're seeking approval from. When that fear is directed toward God, the product of fear in God produces first and foremost an unwavering obedience to His Word. Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2 says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that, ye might, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, and look what he says, to keep all his statutes and commandments. Fear of the Lord brings obedience. That's why Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body. I mean, just think about that. Don't be afraid of people who can kill you but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. The person to whom we ascribe most authority is the person we fear the most. I I tell people, whoever you fear most is your deity. You're allowing them to be the God over your life. People say, well, but I thought we were to obey God out of love and not fear. Well, you need to understand this. Fear of God goes hand in hand with love of God. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, it says, For the love of Christ constraineth me. He couples fear with love. Love is the positive side. Fear is the negative side. Love prompts one to do what pleases God. Fear prompts one to refrain from what displeases God. Does that make sense? 
Love, you want to do what prompts you to do what pleases God. Fear prompts you to refrain from what displeases God. Listen to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep, his command, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Both Moses and Jesus commanded us to love God supremely, and both of them commanded us to fear God supremely. They are not mutually exclusive commands. They are two sides of the same coin. If you love God, you will fear Him. That's why, that's why, that's why America's Christianity is so off, isn't it? It's void of, of fearing God. In fact, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So fear produces not only a reverential awe that causes us to have an unwavering obedience, but it also keeps us from disobeying God. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. I hate Pride Month. I hate it. I hate everything about it. I hate seeing the desecration of the rainbow. You know, I think, I think we, I thought about, you know, we need to figure out some kind of shirt. I've seen some shirts come out, but something, you know, take back the rainbow type idea. Amen. This is God's bow. It's not the perversions of, of, of the world's idea. I hate sin in my own life. I hate, I hate the sin not only outside in the world, but I hate the struggles that we have inwardly. We hate it, don't we? So, so there is a, there's a hatred of that. Job is said to have feared God and eschewed evil. Puritan Thomas Watson said, as the embankments keep out the water, so the fear of the Lord keeps out uncleanness. And so we perfect holiness in the fear of God. And it is indeed the fact, in, in fact, the, the lack of fear that causes men to violate the word of God. You know, Romans 3, 10 through 17 None righteous, no, not one. There's none that feareth God. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their way. The way of peace have they, have they not known. Verse 18 comes along and says, And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Because they don't fear God, they don't care what he thinks. I mean, I, I saw people in pride parades on, on, on um, different news articles that had t-shirts on and said, not this time, Jesus. And, and had goat's heads with rainbow-like symbols on them and all kinds of demonic markings. People walking down streets, not us, God. Like, I mean, just blasphemy against God. No fear of God. And so Solomon warns his son to avoid the snare of sinners. He says, my son, if, if Proverbs 1.10, he says, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. He describes how sinners in Proverbs 1 will seek to entice the simple into doing sinful things. And, and, and they reject wisdom's invitation. And if, if you're familiar with Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom is crying out. It's, it's calling the simple, the naive. It says, Come and, and learn from me, learn from me, gain wisdom, 
but listen to what they do because they would not listen. Proverbs 129 says, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They, they wouldn't listen to the truth because they had no fear of God. I, I think some of us uh, remember the times that we perhaps sat in church and we just did not care what the preacher said. We, we had no care, no concern. We had no fear of God because we loved our sin. Listen, if we want to live a clean, obedient life, it starts with the fear of the Lord. If you want a clean church, you elevate the holiness of God and cause people to tremble before Him. You lift up the Word of God and let that sanctify people. We're not looking to make people laugh and have just a fun time. That's all good. That can be helpful. Laughter does good like a medicine. But, but it should not be a joking event. This is, this is serious stuff because living for God is serious and we're living in a world that's dying and going to hell and we need to be serious about some things. And, and you know, God will... Um, God will bring some stuff into our life to, um, to test us, to challenge us, to reveal his fear to us. I mean, you, you read Exodus 8, uh, chapter 20. God came down and set the mountain ablaze and billows of fire and smoke and lightning. The people were scared to death. Exodus 20, 18, it says, God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. Actually, at that time, yeah. In the early church, when the first major sin came into the church, it was someone lying in Acts 5. You know what God did? He killed the man and his wife. They dropped dead in the church. The loving Lord Jesus killed them both slew them in the church. <laughs> Acts 5.14, and what happened? Did it ruin the church? Oh, you can't grow a church like that. Acts chapter 5, verse 10 says, Then fell she down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. Verse 11, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. What resulted? Verse 14, Acts 5, 14, And believers, the more were added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. The fear of the Lord is what, what will create obedience and the move of God. Um, we have to take, aren't you thankful God doesn't kill all liars because uh, Lighthouse would be in trouble, wouldn't we? <laughs> but there is a law of firsts in the Bible, and God wants us to know that's how He feels about it. We need to take things serious, don't we? And so let's, let's look lastly, number five, I think it's the last point I have the outcome of fearing God. This goes back, flip back with me to uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. So knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, knowing therefore the fear, the phobos of the Lord, what did it, what did it cause Paul to do? It caused him to persuade men. To persuade here is a word that means to induce to believe something with your words. Paul knew without a doubt, man would stand before a holy God, give account of their life, and it prompted him to persuade men to fear God. Be prepared for that day. Fear should motivate our evangelism. That's why 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer with meekness and fear. 
God knows our fear. And in verse 11, he goes on and says, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. The meaning of this is that all of our motives are known to God. He sees the inner man. Like he knows why I do what I do. Now Paul highlights this because he needed to counteract some of the accusations that have come against him. He was being attacked by false apostles at the church at Corinth. They accused him of ministering in the flesh. They accused him of being a liar. They accused him of being a deceiver. They accused him of seeking personal glory. They, I mean, they, they just, there were some false apostles that, and false teachers that were assaulting Paul. And so he says, you know what? I, I minister in the fear of God, and God knows me. He, I am manifested to him. He knows me. And Paul had to constantly defend his own apostleship to the church. And the reason being is he was writing scripture to them. Uh, They were learning the word of God from him. And he was basically defending them by defending himself. There is a time to defend yourself. And, And he did that. And so right fear will produce a ministry of ministry of integrity before others. Verse 11, he says, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Paul is saying that not only does God know his motives at heart, but he trusts the Corinthians do as well. Verse 12, he says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you. We are not saying this for the purpose of boasting in ourselves. he says, to receive some kind of self-glorying. He says that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. And that does bring me to my last point. So, the, the last thought there is the problem of misplaced fear because there were people who gloried in the external and, and, and not the internal. And this is at the heart of the problem of misplaced fear. When you do not fear God, you will begin to fear man and who you fear, you will seek to please. The false apostles and false teachers were always men pleasers. And Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. You will be snared. In Scripture, you find Abraham lied about his wife because he feared men. You will find uh, even David acting like a madman in front of Achish and Gath because he feared them. Peter allowed the fear of man to cause him to deny Christ. The unfaithful steward hid his talent out of fear. I was afraid and hid it in the earth. I believe it is misplaced fear that is the downfall of so many ministries and ministers in our country. You know, because we, we, we proclaim an offensive message. I always thought when I came to Xenia, I thought, I'm, I'm coming to a town to tell people that they are sinners, going to stand before a holy God, die, and without Christ will spend forever in hell. Like, how do you market that? And I only didn't know anybody. You just come into a city, and you preach Christ and Him crucified, and He builds the church, right? But if you fear man, you, you will water that down. You know, people don't want to speak today on LGBTQ, transgender stuff, on abortion. They don't want to preach on issues that are offensive, just scared to death. And what's happened is Americans in, in the Christianity realm have, have begun to fade into a, um, a dangerous place of accepting so much false. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research did a study to find out the spiritual state of the church in 2022. What they found was, these are some of the things... They asked the question, does God learn and adapt to different circumstances? Americans say 51% yes, Christians 48% agree. So God adapts. So like his culture changes, God changes with it. 51% of Americans said yes, 48% of Christians said yes. 
Second question was, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of Christians said yes. I can tell you why they say that, because nobody in their pulpits are saying anything about it. Third question, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Americans, 71% agree. Christians, 65% agree. Everyone's born innocent. I can tell you that church isn't preaching on sin. That's... That's psychology crept in, isn't it? That, that's born innocent. That's where that came from. I praise God we have some people in our church in that field that teach right things in their field. Thank you for that. Fourthly, gender identity is a matter of choice. Americans, 42% agreed. Christians, 37% agreed. It's a matter of choice. Gender is? Really? So you can... <laughs> Fifth question, the Bible condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 46% of Americans agree, 28% of Christians agree. What you find is the, the downfall of truth because we're having some concerts. Let's have a concert. I'm looking for a church with some good music. Do we have a light show there? What's their kids program like? Do they do fun stuff? Do they have a big slide in the front of the church that I can see through a window that the kids can get in a bouncy house and play and be so cool? Again, not all those things in themselves are wrong, but when that becomes your, like, staple, when that's what you're known for, and, 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 and what's that say when that's what you're seeking? Why don't you ask the question, will my children learn the Word of God? Will they preach to teach the Word of God right and bold and clear with grace and in truth? And preachers won't preach on these sins because they don't fear God. They're afraid of people. Paul made it clear in Galatians 1.10, he said, If I please men, I should not be the servants of Christ. You know, Hebrews 12.28 says this, Because I believe we have too many sanctuaries filled with Christians walking in ten minutes late, sipping their lattes, approaching a God who's a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be removed. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. How do we serve God acceptably? He says, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's how we, that's how we need to enter in here. We don't need to... Now, if you bring in a drink, nothing wrong with that. If you have a coffee, that's okay. But, but what I'm trying to say is, we need to have some seriousness when we come to church. Because it's, it's not because of you and me, it's because of Him. I mean, do you think we would come to Mount Sinai just making a light of it? I mean, we would, we would be trembling and God would say, take off your shoes for this place is holy ground. We need, to, we need to have a sense of like awe of God. And you say, well, my body's a temple of the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. And what happens when a bunch of temples gather together? Right? The church comes together. We, we should designate at least a place and a time where we say, God, let me stand in awe of you. This is, this is Psalms 4.4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your heart on your bed. Be still. Job 42.5. I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Paul's fear of God caused him to be faithful no matter what people thought of him in verse 13. I need to close this down for sake of time. But in verse 13, as we wrap up, he says, whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. What he's saying there, it's, the, the word beside ourselves, it's a word that means whether people think we're crazy. Remember when he spoke before King Agrippa? 
and Festus said in Acts 26, 24, he says, Paul, much learning hath made thee mad. He wasn't acting crazy. He was speaking a message that they didn't understand. He said, maybe Paul needed to tone that down a little bit. Well, they said the same thing about Jesus. They said, Jesus is, uh, is beside himself. His own family said that in Mark 3, 21. His enemies said he is a Samaritan and has a devil in John 8, 48. You know, D.L. Moody, they used to call him Crazy Moody. Crazy Moody. Because he went everywhere sharing the gospel. If you fully give your life to the Lord, what will happen is you'll live up right side up in an upside down world and they'll think you're the odd one, but you're living in ultimate reality. You will look odd and talk odd and have desires that are odd and you're actually living like a citizen of heaven on earth. He says, whether we are seen as crazy, I don't even, I don't care. He says, or whether we be sober, it's for your cause. Sober there is a mind that is controlled by God. God is in control. And that's what would be said of Paul by those who knew him. And so as I close, if you want to live a Christian life, it is done with a factual knowledge that you and I will stand before a holy God, that you are driven by an overwhelming awe and reverence to God. It motivates you to continue to live faithfully for the Lord in a fallen world. It is what causes you to persuade men, to perfect holiness, to hate evil, to serve the Lord, and the list goes on. So as I close, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Does What in your life evidences that reality? And I think all of us can learn from God's word tonight. Amen. Amen. 